G'day everyone, Sean here. This is the part two of the best of 2017, which is my 10 picks from 10 to 1 ranked for best films of 2017. If you haven't listened to the at part one already, which was my honorable mentions and it ranks between 20, 20 and 11, please go and listen to that before this one. Hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Alright, so we're in the top 10 now, and uh, coming in at number 10 is a film that no one would have seen, because this is one that I saw at the Melbourne International Film Festival this year, and yet has yet to get a wide release, and there isn't even any trailers or even a poster for this film. There's a couple of still images from the film online, but apart from that, there's not a whole lot about this film, and this film is called Ellipsis, and it is the directorial debut of Australian actor David Wenham, who has been in a lot. Most notably as Faramir in the Lord of the Rings tr- movies, and I think he's on that terrible Iron Fist as well. He's in 300. He's in. He's been in everything, pretty much. And he's... he's a lot of acting work. Mm, he's a great actor. He's, he's a fantastic actor. And um, he's had a go at directing. And this film is kind of... What I really appreciate about this film is that this was done on a micro, micro budget. Mm, it sounds like it without ha- with it having like no advertisement it, at all. No, no advertising, no, n- nothing about it. And the film, like, it's so genuine. The whole thing was done over just 11 days. It was oh, workshopped geez. and shot over the space of 11 days. And I did, and yes, I said workshopped because this film is almost entirely improvised. There isn't a script. And That's interesting. So it's kind of, it's a very much a kind of Richard Linklater, John Cassavetes-esque kind of romantic film that's very dialogue heavy, very dialogue driven, but the dialogue is very snappy, it's really engaging, and th- this film really wouldn't work without not only the direction of Wenham, but also the performances that are so authentic, so very genuine and just really, and they have amazing chemistry, Emily Barclay and uh, Benedict Samuel. These two together on screen, they're so delightful. They're so charming. Everything about them is just—you just—it's just they their performances. They just gravitate towards watching them. And this film is only like eighty-five minutes long with oh. credits. And it's one of the—it's—it's f- it's the one of the first of a few films in my top ten that once I finished watching it, I wanted to keep watching it. I didn't want the film to end. Gee, I really didn't. So, so you wanted it to go longer? I really do wished you, it. Do was. you think that it should be longer? You just. You like the film so much, you could have just been. Yeah, like, you're so immersed yeah. in the film's universe. Yeah, because the, the, fil- the film the film takes place over pretty much the span of 24 hours. Because the basic setup for this film is that it's set in Sydney, and these two people they accidentally bump into it. They bump in. There's a chance encounter between these two people. Mm. The girl, like the boy, they accidentally bump into each other. The girl's phone smashes on the ground, and then the guy's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Like, and then they go in, they get there. So she takes her phone in to get repaired, and then mm. like he's like, oh, "I'll make it up to you." Like while while your phone's waiting, will so and then they pretty much just spend the they spend the day together and the night together and they just learn a bit more about each other's life and it's so good it's so charming mm. the diet like it, nothing the film really isn't about anything deep or meaningful no, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem so like it doesn't seem that there's any real narrative direction or anything no it's, it's sort of like just a, I guess in a way like a slice of life really. yeah it really is it really really is and just the locations as well like um that they go to because it's all shot around Sydney mm. and the people that they, a, a couple of things are clearly staged, but a lot of the stuff and, and David Wenham talking in the Q and a after the film, like, cause there's a scene early on where they go to like, uh, I think they go to like Bondi or somewhere where they're like, they, they go mm. to see like big sand sculptures 
And when they go there, they're not there anymore because they just finished. And that was actually David Wenham going like, yeah, we had no idea. We thought it was still on. We had no idea that it had finished. So when we got there, like, oh, shit. Okay, well, we'll just film. We'll do this scene everywhere. here anyway. Like, there's a couple of scenes that are quite quite obviously staged. Like, there's a scene where the girl gets her purse snatched. So, I mean, if that was actually done, that's awesome. But I doubt that was... <laughs> I, I think like that was one of the... realism. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, but that, that we actually got mugged. Mm. We were going to stage a mugging, but we got mugged. And, and the film, actually, like, this would have been... It, it was kind of a welcome, almost, side thing to this film, but the film also follows the person fixing their phone as well, and, like, it shows his life too, which is interesting. Like, it's... it's it sounds like it should didn't belong in the film, and like it was just there to try kind oh, to just, get the film to feature it in well. Yeah, yeah, I they mean, really considering do. Considering that they don't have any real objective, I guess it just wouldn't be too weird if they were to diverge off onto someone else's life. Yeah, considering that it's a slice of life film, and it would be about these two characters interacting mm. with each other. Yeah, and I really love that, like, and the title ellipsis because, like, uh, he David Wenham he only found out what uh, you know what an ellipsis is definitely. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's like the dot dot dot, like that oh, you see yeah, yeah. an ellipsis. Like it's a short pause, and that he he pretty much came up with a title because he actually it was he was at a parent teacher conference and he saw a poster in like the in in a classroom and he's like, what the hell's an ellipsis? And like the teacher told him about it, and then he was like, oh, it's a short. So these two people take a short pause in their lives to interact with each other and get to know each other, and then they resume their lives after when it, when it's all said and done. That's and good. Yeah, it's such a delightful film. Hopefully, it will get distribu. I, I don't even know if this film got distribution yeah. yet. I really hope it does because this film was such a beautiful, if, just if delightful slice of life. At least we hope there'll be on some kind of streaming. Service. Oh, definitely. Th- this this is another one that Netflix could snap up mm. easily. Or Stan, like Stan, seemed to be wanting to do Australian content, and well, David Wenham's on the new Romper Stomper series that for, that's made for Stan. Romper so, Stomper series. Yeah, there's a there's oh, there, there's crazy. a Stan original series that's about that the Stan have made a series about Romper Stomper, and David Wenham's in it, Lockie Hume, a couple of other have really you seen notable. It? I haven't seen it because I don't have Stan. I plan on watching it. I don't know. I don't know. Like I, th- I don't know if it's in the same. I think it might be a remake. Of it because so like it's just like a modern film. retelling of Romper Stomper. Oh right, so it wouldn't be set in like yeah. No, Rus- Russell Crowe's not showing up, <laughs> I don't think. Anyway, so yeah, a li- have a Russell Crowe character with the um, the uh, bone, uh, the arm, the, the bone tattoo on his arm. <laughs> uh, okay, um, yeah. So ellipsis. I will be keeping a close eye to see if this film does get uh, distribution, and I will let listeners know when it is actually available. And like when you can actually see it, because I really, really want to watch this film again. And I mean, this this has got my interest. I, I like a, I like a film. I like films every now and then that really break the mold of the uh, films that you usually get that would have a heavy narrative focus and mm. something that would just be a slice of life that mm. doesn't really have much. It doesn't have any real strong focus on anything. Maybe like just the relationships, and it's sort of like an experience. I just remember, and they also interact with a bunch of people on the street. They sh- they they feel genuine, like they should be characters. Was it all genuine? Re- like like these people didn't know that they were being recorded. Well, that they were asked maybe, first. They were oh, asked, "Hey, right. do you want to be in this film?" And then they can just you just improvise. They feel like genuine, like actual written performances. But oh, no, right. those are just those people because the two go into like a sex shop in like King Street or whatever, <laughs> and the guys that run the sex shop. Are fucking hilarious. <laughs> they are awesome. Oh, yeah. yes, definitely see this. 
I, I loved it. I want to watch it again. I'll keep an eye out if it does get distribution or when it's available in cinemas or on streaming to let you guys know because I absolutely adored this film. Mm-hmm. All right, number nine. Uh, getting more into blockbuster territory here. I love Edgar Wright. Yeah. He is oh, a I, I genius. I know you're a huge fan. You're a big fan he of the He is Cornetto a genius. And, look, and you love Scott Pilgrim. Too. I love Scott Pilgrim. I love the Cornetto trilogy. And I love Baby Driver. Mm. And to be honest, I think this might be his best film to date. Really? I mean, that's definitely up for that's debate for a lot of people. But I remember you thought it was one of the weaker films. Yeah, his, uh, but here's film. the thing. I've rewatched it since then, and it's amazing. I mean, it's, I, I haven't rewatched it. it, but um, I remember when I saw the film, it had a, it had a good impression. Had a good um, sense of style to it, uh, which does. we talked about a lot in that. Other it's episode. Edgar Wright's style works really well for this movie. It is so fast paced. So mm. the action is some of the best direct. The action and the car chases, mm. some of the best directed I've seen yeah, in a film some, in quite a while. Some very good editing in this. And and as, as we said, because this is another film that we talked about in a previous episode. Yeah. And yeah, the editing in this film and how they synced up this yeah, incredible the soundtrack the the to the characters. movements of the and the action of the film. That was a stroke of brilliance. It really was. A lot of the performances, Ansel Elgort, who we actually just found out because we've got the um, Twitter feed from the Golden Globes, was actually nominated for best supporting, no, best lead actor in a comedy or musical for Baby Driver for, at the Golden Globes. Um, and we found out he got beaten by James Franco, which yeah. that's well deserved. But yeah, Ansel Elgort, especially seeing him in a bunch of YA nonsense, it was good seeing him in a film like this. Yeah, he's doing well for himself with roles like this. You should keep mm. it up, I think. Yeah, and also it's good to see John Hamm in films. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to see John Hamm in films. I think he's uh, kind of just like waiting around the TV and just trying. <laughs> he's just waiting for Ben Affleck to quit so he can become Batman, I think. <laughs> I think that's what John Hamm's doing at the moment. But I, I absolutely love this film. And like we've, we've talked more about it in more detail, so I won't say too much else about it. I do have a few flaws with the movie. The ending is kind of crap. I think the final five minutes. Oh yeah, that's I very think hammy. it's very cheesy. And look, it's just awkward watching any movie with Kevin Spacey in it from now. Like, it's oh, especially a line, a particular line of dialogue in this film is has a whole new context now. Do you remember the line I'm talking about? No, I don't. But yeah, I mean. Maybe you should, if you haven't seen this film yet, maybe you should just wait a bit until the, the mm. whole uh, spacey the, uh, fiasco is just blown yeah, over. Yeah, I reckon... So as I guess it's sort of really... Cause it was, I, I know with some people, they can be very strange, and, and it's the same with with Polanski, that they, they hear about terrible things. And Woody Allen. <laughs> and Woody Allen. His movie this year looked terrible. Oh, Wonder Wheel. Yikes! It's like set on Coney Island or whatever. It's like, hey, Woody Allen, maybe make a movie well, outside of New York. I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't be bothered bothering with the uh, Woody Allen films now because he, he, he makes he makes films like every year or two. He's just, yeah. He just look he's his just work rate's fantastic. Out. He's just a piece of shit. Mm. But I, I really think you should just separate the actions of the artists away from their art, really. Mm. But look, when there's a line of, like the line that I'm talking about, there's a line that Kevin Spacey said, like he's telling how he met Baby or like how he became his driver. And he was like, he stole my car. I didn't, I didn't chase after him or try to hunt him down because I admired the balls on that kid. <laughs> and I was, I'm re-watching this. I'm like, uh, knowing what we yeah. all know now, it's just, ew. Uh, it does just, taint just, the movie just, a little bit. Just, just try and not think of that when you're watching the film, oh. I think. 
I think Edgar Wright, as soon as he heard about that, he's like, oh, thank God my movie came out before that. Yeah. Oh, God. That is... Film would have been but really now, but now I'm just imagine. Now I'm just imagining Christopher Plummer as Doc in Baby Driver. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, I saw all the money in the world. It's fine. Kept Christopher Plummer. The way they handled that is really good, and Christopher Plummer's actually great. But the movie's just Oscar bait. And speaking yeah, of does. guys like Woody Allen and like those guys, it's impressive that Ridley Scott's in his 80s and he's still pumping out a film or two a year. Yeah, I don't know. It's great work ethic. Yeah. But he's another one of those directors that's like nothing real special about his actual filmmaking. He just, just he just gets yeah, the he job just, done. He just gets the job done, really. It just seems like he's making films because it's something he'd still do. You know, something to put money in his pocket. Yeah. So, watch Baby Driver. Ignore the Kevin Spacey stuff. It's a fun action for it mm. ride that's just so fast-paced. Yeah. And I just mean, a joy to watch. If you want to hear more about what we have to say with Baby Driver, we, we had an extensive uh, sort of talk about it in a previous episode. So you we should do. Check, that out. check that one out. Moving on to number eight. Now, I'm cheating a little bit here because... Well, I saw this in 2017, but this film, it's a big Oscar contender. We found out it just won for Best Original, Alejandro Desplat just won for Best Original Score for the, at the Golden Globes for this film. Mm. I didn't particularly think it was that the score was that great, but mm. look, I, and I saw a preview screening of this on New Year's Eve, so I'm counting it, even though this film is scheduled for a January 18th release here in Australia. Did you, wait, did you see an early screen? I saw an early screening. Oh, well, I think that should count, I guess. I'm counting it. I'm counting it. I don't care. And this is Guillermo del Toro's new film, The Shape of Water, and it is easily his best film since Pan's Labyrinth. By far. Yeah, well, that wouldn't be too hard to do, I, I would think. I mean, sorry. That wouldn't be too hard to do, I'd think, because from Pan's Labyrinth, that's when he did more of his big blockbustery stuff, like his uh, Hellboy... Mm. And, and Pacific Rim and and the Crimson. I, did, I didn't oh, see Crimson, Crimson Peak, Peak, but I heard well. it was disappointing. I keep forgetting that Crimson Peak exists because it seems mm. like. And when, don't, oh, sorry, no, well, before the film came out, people were sort of getting a bit interested. Yeah. in Guillermo del Toro. They're like, oh my god, he's making horror he's, again. He's going to make a horror film. This is going to be interesting. But then when the film came out, they just realized it was very. Yeah. It was very. Yeah. Meh. And also, don't forget, he did Blade Two as well. Oh yeah. Solid Blade sequel. Two would have been before, um, yeah, uh, Blade Two would be like in a, in a similar tier with like Mimic. Mm. Oh yeah, oh he made that's right, he made that too. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, The Shape of Water. I would love to think that this film got made because due to like a poker game or like a dare between Peter Jackson and Guillermo del Toro, <laughs> where like after because you know how Guillermo del Toro had to leave, he was going to make The Hobbit, but then he walked out to do like the 50 projects that he has in production. <laughs> yeah. So, and I bet you Peter Jackson was like, I bet, th- I dare you to make a film where a fish man and a yeah. mute woman fall in love with each other and for you to make that believable in a film. And Guillermo just turned to him and said, oh, I'll make it. And you know what? I'll get it nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards and it might even win some. <laughs> and look, this movie sounds ridiculous and kind of dumb on paper. I mean, to me, it sort of seems like a... Because uh, like, the whole concept of a woman loving like a fish man, like a murloc or whatever, that, that would be something that you'd see in like a 50s B sci-fi film. Yeah. It's sort of like he grabs the, the B, 50s B sci-fi concept and takes it completely serious and makes it com- hmm. like compelling romantic drama out of it yeah and this film nice. this film is uh, as I said this is another film that like as soon as it finished I, I wanted it to keep going I didn't want it to end 
Jeez. I was having such a great time with this film. The Shape of Water is... Uh, the way I would describe it, it's Beauty and the Beast mixed with The Creature from the Black Lagoon. That's that's probably a, a great comparison, really. Yeah, and there's even, there's even a scene that straight up um, not rips off. It's an homage to Beauty and the Beast, mm. and which is really, really awesome. It's a fantasy sequence, of course. Mm. But what I love about this film, all the acting is fantastic. Sally Hawkins, the way that she is able to emote so much and convey so much emotion without even saying a word or even really yeah, making a sound. She doesn't really, really even make a sound for much of the movie. Mm. Like, the, there is a fantasy sequence where she does sing, which is the Beauty and the Beast thing. But, yeah, apart from that, she is just fantastic. And look, it, it, it's either going to be her or Frances McDormand for three billboards that's going to take out Best Actress. Either is completely worthy. Either would be a fine worthy. choice with you. And, yeah, speaking of three billboards as well, it is just one for Best Screenplay at the Golden Globes. What's your opinion on that? Because uh, I, I hear some people look, say it's a little weaker than the the scripts. Other, a little, like the scripts a little weaker than his. Uh, I think his it has the same issue. I think it has the same issues as all his other films. It's just the tone. The tones of the film didn't always mesh the that well. Shifts. The, the tonal shifts are weren't yeah. uh, were a bit uneven and weren't always that smooth. I, and I can I can I, I definitely had that problem with in uh, I had that with in Bruges. I didn't. I had that with Seven Psychopaths. Really? I yeah. thought I think Seven Psychopaths might be my favorite film of his. I know oh. that's it's. I think it's very underrated. That's. I think Seven Psychopaths is very underrated. Yeah, I know some people who think the same. I I I think in Bruges yeah. is much better um, than. Seven psychopaths. Yeah. Also, with uh, three billboards, there's another thing that I didn't really like about it, or like not like, but something that felt a little bit out of place is that a lot of um, uh, supporting characters in that film just kind of felt like afterthoughts. <laughs> like Peter Dinklage's character in particular, it just felt like, oh shit, we've got Peter Dinklage in this movie. Oh, we've only got ha- we've got half an hour left in the movie, and we've barely used him here. Chuck him in the like, put him in most of the f- third act. <laughs> but. Oh. Oh well, um, but back to the shape of water. Um, also, and this film has an incredible supporting cast as well. Octavia Spencer's fantastic. Richard Jenkins as well. Oh really? R- Richard Jenkins, awesome character actor, mm. and he is awesome as like the artist. Like, and also Michael Shannon is an antagonist as like a military dude yeah. that wants. Do you to think cut he was good open. in um, the film? Yes. Everyone, no one is bad in this movie. That's Everyone good. is good. Michael Stuhlbarg, who is in literally every, like, who has a fantastic agent and is in literally everything at the moment. Mm. Like, ev- everything. Every good movie that's came out over the last, like, one, two or three years, he's been in. And oh, it's awesome. Him. Yep. And what I love about this movie especially is that all of the characters, like, it all certain, all of the characters, there's something about them that's missing. They are all incomplete in one way, shape, or form. Well, that's good. Um, in some way, this creature, despite what, in whatever reason, this creature fills their void for whatever. So for for um, Sally Hawkins, it's for you know, yeah, romantic a, reasons. For rom- romantic reasons. For Richard Jenkins, who was an artist, he's like inspiration, muse, like inspiration and a muse. Even with Michael Shannon's character, and with Michael Shannon's character, mm. who's he need like he's his he, home life isn't good, and like he needs this. Like, well, he, he takes his aggression out on the creature. His, yeah, he needs. He's trying to feel complete. He needs to complete this mission, otherwise he feels like he's going to be... Oh, incomplete. And even, even with Michael Stuhlbarg's character, which I guess this isn't really a spoiler, who's actually a Soviet, like, who's a Soviet spy, but he's hired, but, like, he's hired to capture it and, like, to, like, gain secrets from the creature and, like, eventually steal it and give it to the Soviets. <laughs> but he has a change of heart because he's, like, he's a scientist and he wants to develop it and learn more about it. Mm. 
so then he eventually helps um, uh, Sally Hawkins with their cause and like trying to free him and things like that. And also just this film, again, this, the mixture, the creature itself, the mixture yeah, of practical car- effects and it's mostly practical effects. There's a little bit of CGI there, but the practical but effects, seamless, the design the of the creature, it's really seamless as well. Mm. And the design of the creature and also just Doug Jones, the incredible yet underrated Doug Jones, who is the end, who is... Probably better than Andy Circus, I think. Really? He is, oh. yeah. I mean, Andy Circus is fantastic. Andy Circus is fantastic, but Doug Jones, he's been in a million things and he's almost always playing monsters. He's worked with Guillermo del Toro a shit ton, mm. most notably as Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies and the Fawn and the Pale Man in Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. The Pale Man, which is one of the most terrifying, yeah, the one of the most the terrifying news. monsters ever put to film. Yeah. And yeah, Doug Jones, he is amazing. And when I saw this film, when I saw this film and posted about it on New Year's Eve, Doug Jones liked my post. So that was pretty fucking awesome. So oh, he he's just so underrated, and I love him so much. And I love this film. It's just well, let's hope that he gets an Oscar nom. Oh, it will. Sally Hawkins will get mm. something. They should. Richard Jenkins might even too. Richard Jenkins is fantastic. And That's I love good. I love the film of like uh, as I said the themes of like being like being incomplete and ev- this thing it just was really nice that it all kind of came together. It's good that the film s- sounds like it just goes all full circle. Mm. And I would love my theory to be p- to be true. Mm. Just stuck it to Peter Jackson. It'd be <laughs> funny. <laughs> Is he ever going to make another movie again? I know he's got that. I know he's producing and writing that Mortal Engines movie. Yeah. And I think he's um. I'm not his DP. I think his like first assistant director from the Lord of the Rings movies is directing that. But I'm not sure. I don't know. The movie looks interesting. Oh, I want though. him to make a sequel to the Lovely Bones. <laughs> Lovely Bones is terrible. <laughs> Stanley Tucci's fantastic in that movie, but the rest of that is bad. It's a funny film to watch. Uh, okay. All right, moving on. The Shape of Water. It's a, it, it'll come out in a few weeks. Please go see it. It's well worth your time and money. And we'll get a lot of... And look out for it in awards season. Mm. And this film, number seven. This is about as indie and art house as a film could ever get. Now, Eric, ask me. All right. No, no, no. Not ask me. Tell me. You have Casey Affleck in your film. Yeah. He's hot off the success of winning an Academy Award for yeah. Manchester by the Sea. What would you, if you ha- If you had him cast in your film, what would you do with him? Oh, for a blanket over his Yeah, head, put a sheet over him for like 90% of your movie. I, <laughs> I don't know what the thought process was with this film, but it was a creative choice that really, really fucking worked. And yep, this is David Lowry's A Ghost Story. David Lowry is becoming a really, really awesome indie filmmaker. And, well, indie filmmaker and live and big budget kind of stuff. He did, I haven't seen his uh, re- remake of Pete's Dragon yet. I hear good things. Oh, yeah. And his first film, Ain't Them Body Saints, also with uh, uh, Casey Affleck and Rooney Lara. That film is fantastic. And he has two films in production that I'm really excited for. Another oh, Disney yeah. film, he's going to be remaking Peter Pan, oh, that'd be which could be really good. And he has a film coming out next year called The Old Man and the Gun, which oh. is about like a, a criminal... Like, I think it's following a criminal who was like escapes jail to rob a nursing home or something like that. Okay. <laughs> but it's, ba- it's based off a real, it's based off like a real guy and like off like a proper news report. And it's got, it's got Robert Redford in the leading role. Oh, it could be awesome. But a ghost story was his low budget passion project that he quite clearly put his heart and soul in. And it is 
unlike anything that I've ever seen before. Yeah, I hear uh, good, uh, great things about ghost stories. Seem to do quite well with the mm. indie crowd. I haven't actually seen it, unfortunately. Mm. The, the way this movie was constructed and frame, even the framings. Like, have you seen how the like the trailer? So this I've film, seen, I've seen that the the as, It's almost they like change, did they change the aspect ratio? In no. The, here's uh, the thing: the film is almost as if you're looking through a viewfinder. Like the film yeah. is in a four by three aspect ratio with rounded off rounded off corners. Like, almost, yeah, as if you're looking for a viewfinder or as if you're watching, like, an old home video or something. Because yeah, I have seen footage like that. I wasn't sure if it was in that aspect. Yeah, no, yeah, time. the whole film is like that. Oh, okay. And it's 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 a really, really cool choice that they, that they made, and mm. it really pays off. Because it, like, it feels like you're watching something that's very personal and kind of intimate to them, which is mm. kind of what this film is all about. Like, this film explores so many things. It's like from, like, obviously death and yeah. life. And love, and loneliness, grief. This well. film has the best depiction of grief that I have ever seen in a film ever. And it involves Rooney Mara sitting down in her kitchen, eating a pie, and uh, like a five to six minute shot of her just scoffing down a pie, a chocolate pie, unedited. It sounds terrible. It is this, uh, like, as soon as I was watching it, I'm like, what's going on? She's eating the pie. What was it the way she's she eating the, the pie. pie? She's eating the pie. Where's this scene going? She's still eating the pie. She's oh, oh, okay, fuck. Well, as soon as she starts eating the pie, she starts crying so much, and then like, it just keeps going, and you just see Casey Affleck in like in like just chilling out, wearing the sheet, just watching this happen. Like this film is a masterclass in visual storytelling as well. There is very very little dialogue. Nearly the entire film is told completely through visuals. Well, that's good. And it's I like a good brilliant. visual film. It's really, really brilliant. And yeah, that the pie eating scene. Apparently, when I was watching, um, one of the YouTubers I watch, um, Adele from Roll Credits, she saw this oh, at yeah. the Sydney Film Festival. And possible future guest, uh, stay tuned for for that when she's on. Uh, she said that when she saw this at the Sydney Film Festival during this scene, the pie eating scene, which I think is about half an hour into the film. Mm. People got up and left. Oh, they just destroyed them. Look, yeah, I'm like, it, this movie is like this film's like 86 minutes long, and it is moves. It's a fair at bit a, of time to devote to someone is, eating a pie. It is, mm, I know, but here's the thing: it is very, very slow, like almost glacial speeds at some point. But to this but, film, it really adds to it. This film, but the thing is, like. For a film to be so, I guess, harmonic mm. in its tone, almost it meditative, need, meditative, it would need to move at such a slow mm. pace. Like it'd just be strange for things to happen so mm. quickly. Like and the film needs to give time for like the the audience to sort of lull themselves into. It's the a film. film that also really rewards patience too, and uh, that that pie eating scene in particular. Like as as soon as you're starting, you're like, "Where's this going? Where's this going?" And then when it gets towards the end, you're like, "Holy shit, that was." Brilliant. <laughs> that was absolutely brilliant. I guess that, uh, as I said, the best... That's a good use of building sort of like uh, tension, I guess. Because it would start off with something that seems so mundane. And then I guess in, and I guess in a way it would sort of build... At least, oh, well, I haven't seen, but this is what I would imagine. That it would sort of build subtly until it happens. Until the bomb goes off and she starts crying. Yeah. It, it's... This film just blew me away. Like it will affect a lot of people so deeply on on a mm. really emotional level. Like, it seems it might like crush it if people, some. 
if people walked out of the uh, the festival of viewing, I guess it'd, it'd have a similar mm. effect on other people. Yeah, well, here, and another thing, like, uh, if you have recently lost a loved one, uh, maybe don't watch this because, <laughs> yeah, that's it'll be tough to watch, but mm. it's a beautiful, beautiful film. I mean, it does look very interesting visually from, from uh, stills and footage that I've seen. Mm. So, yeah, I'm keen to watch this one as well. Yeah, definitely check it out. A ghost story. It's visual storytelling at its absolute best. One of the most emotionally and very impactful and definitely the most original films I saw this year. All right, now coming up on... Um, <laughs> fucking hell. Okay, we've just been off mic for a little bit, so we're a little bit... Uh, well, <laughs> we're a bit off track at the moment. It's okay. We're, at, we're editing all this out. So, <laughs> Wind River is number six, and it is the directorial debut from writer Taylor Sheridan and is the third uh, film in his unofficial American Frontier trilogy with uh, Sicario and Hell or High Water, <laughs> two films that are both great. Yeah. In in their own ways. Like Hell or High Water, go back. We've talked about yeah, that. We've talked about it. We both uh, We both really love that. I still need really need to rewatch it. But I, I mean I'm not sure it's up to you, but I, I find the film quite rewatchable really. I, I can't wait to I, I might do that when I get home tonight, actually rewatch that. But Wind River is so Sicario is pretty much like on the Mexican border. Yeah. Pretty much. This film uh, no sorry Hell or High Water was like in the Midwest kind of like tech where was Hell or High Water set like Texas somewhere out that way I think I can't remember I think exactly. it was somewhere in the Midwest maybe I think but then this film is like way up in like the northern kind of like Wyoming near the Canadian border it's set on the uh, in the Wind River uh, Native American Reserve where Jeremy Renner who's like a hunter for the reserve um, one day while trying to hunt a mountain lion, uh, stumbles across a dead body of a girl and then FBI agent Elizabeth Olsen comes in to investigate the case and they've, they identify it as a murder and then it's that those two work together and try to help find who murdered this girl and made her run all the way out in the middle of in the snow to pretty much go out to die. And this film is... Really, really well done. The sweet, the cinematography, just with the sweeping shots of the of like the huge snowy landscapes and these mountains, and it's just beautiful. Like even though it's like all the same, it's just all white. It's just beautiful to look at sometimes. And this film is really dark and really, really atmospheric, and that's helped with that cinematography. But also the score. It's a very brooding kind of oh. score from Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, oh, who also nice. did, who also did the Hell or High Water theme as well. And but with this one, it was kind of like um, you can slowly hear, like you can very faintly in the soundtrack sometimes hear Nick Cave just kind of like murmuring to himself. Because <laughs> I remember I watched it because my the TV the the shitty TV that I had at my university. Uh, because I noticed this on the rewatch, because I rewatched it at my at, at my uni apartment, and the TV has such shit sound that I had to watch most films with the subtitles on, and the lyrics from the song were appearing on the subtitles, and it's kind of like almost narrating what the characters are thinking and like their thoughts, and I thought that was really really cool, and also Nick Cave is just a national treasure. Let's yeah, just say that. <laughs> That's just a music or film, really. Mm. I need I, mean, to, I, I want to recently watch saw um, a film. Uh, what's it? Um, was it Ghosts of the Civil Dead? Oh, did he? He played uh, one of the the prison inmates. Oh, oh he, he acted in it. Yeah, did he? he acted in it. Oh wow! 
Because I think, didn't he write that, um, the, I think he wrote a film, it was the one with like, um, the Prohibition era one, it's got, um, uh, Lawless, Lawless. didn't he write that? Yeah, I think he did. And it's made by, um, John Hillcoat as well? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, the score to this movie is really good, very brooding and very atmospheric, and also... After watching Jeremy Renner in so many... Like, because he's just been able to sneak his way into, like, six different franchises. He managed <laughs> to sneak... Well, he was in Marvel, of course, but then he's also in Mission Impossible. He snuck himself into the Bourne movies. Mm. He, dude is in everything. Like, dude is going all right. So the he's fact that well he, for himself. So the fact that he chose to do this little independent film, and he is awesome in it. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, you're a great actor. I completely <laughs> forgot. I've seen you in so much franchise You're not stuff. just a face to sell our films. <laughs> yeah. You're actually a really good actor. Same with Elizabeth Olsen. Like, I as soon as I saw this movie, I'm like, I do not buy for a second that Elizabeth Olsen is an FBI agent. <laughs> not for a single second. But then watching this movie, I'm like, oh, shit. I completely believe you. I, you I, are, I hear you're her great. introductions like very fish out of water. Yeah, like yeah, goes, it really she, is. She goes to a wind river. Well, she's like El, uh, apparently she got put on the case because she was the closest. Yeah, she was the closest, and she was in Vegas. <laughs> she was in Vegas, <laughs> so this just shows how remote this area was mm. that they had to get someone all the way from Vegas to come and do it. And the film is just, it's just. Oh, Look, you're going to hear a lot of dead air in this episode, which I may probably edit out. But and just me thinking about these films, I love it so much. Like, there's so much I can say about it, but it's hard to put into words. Yeah, I understand that feeling. Mm. Yeah, so, and you have not seen this, but you liked a lot of Taylor Sheridan's films, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed Sicario, and I really liked Hell or High Water. And uh, what do you feel about the Sicario sequel that's coming out next year? Taylor Sheridan is coming back to write it. I don't, I don't, I don't, who's, who's, uh, directing it? Directing, it is a, an Italian director who is apparently, like, I, I haven't seen any of the films, but from the look of it, from the look of it, he's done a lot of stuff, like, around the Mexican cartels, so, I think it's a pretty decent choice. I don't, I don't know, I haven't actually looked into, um, mm. Sicario 2, but it just it's seems a bit weird so- for a Soldado. Well, here's the thing, it shouldn't be called Sicario 2, it should be called Soldado. Because it's called Sicario 2 Soldado. Mm. It should just be called Soldado. It should just be called Soldado. Because Soldado is Spanish for soldier. Mm. And Sicario was Spanish for hitman. Yeah. So, I so guess that shows the natural... soldier. Yeah. Hit <laughs> Which um, might be a bit, a bit of a red flag. Yeah. That I thought when you said hitman, I'm like, oh, can we get Benicio del Toro to shave his get Benicio del Toro to shave his head and put a barcode <laughs> on the back of his head? Yeah, sorry. Maybe we should have used the term assassin. Assassino. I think it would still be Sicario anyway, but yeah, Wind River was such a... It was a really compelling mystery film as well. Like, towards the third act, it gets really, really... Like, a lot happens in the third act. And there's a huge flashback sequence in the third act that's done... Well, at first I thought, oh, okay, now we're in a flashback. But now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, that was so actually done really well. well placed. Yeah. I thought it was really well placed, and the, the, this movie even has like a good old final shootout at the oh, end, nice. which I thought was really awesome. And oh, another really great, uh, great uh, character actor because there's a lot of Native American actors in this film, which is also really good. Gil Birmingham, who is just he's the stock. Well, he's not stock or whatever. I'm not being anything like that, but he's played he's played um, Native. He's he's like the typical guy you go to if you want a Native American in your film. He was the partner in Hell or High Water. 
that dude. Oh, yeah. That and he's guy, also yeah. like the dad in Kimmy Schmidt. And he was in Transformers The Last Night as well in a very small yeah, role. See that. Uh, we'll talk about that later. But, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm excited to hear about it. I, I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't actually get to watch The Last but, Night. I've heard some great things about how, yeah. how brilliant it is. But, yeah, also, entertaining. But back to what I was getting to. Graham Greene, who is... The guy, a guy who you just, if you need a wise Native American man in your film, get him in your film. Like, he's like been in everything from Dances with the Wolves to that shitty Winter's Tale movie. <laughs> and But in this one, he plays, like, the policeman. And he's so, so good. And, like, almost acts as kind of like a mentor to Elizabeth Olsen. Because Jeremy Renner, like, he's only doing it because he knows the person that was murdered. And that he ha- he also had a child that died in a very similar way to this that this girl did. And that's mm-hmm. the why he's doing it. He just wants to catch it. He doesn't care about the FBI investigation. He just wants to get and he find wants the to guy catch that the did bugger. it. He just wants to find the guy that did it. Mm. Mm. And, yeah, so Wind River, it's... Yeah, number six, best film of the year. Absolutely loved it. Well, You'll sounds, check it out. It sounds great. Yeah, I think I will check it out sometime. Yeah, and also, like, it'd be a good movie to watch during summer too because it might, like, if you put it in, like, air conditioning on, dark room, <laughs> all the lights, and you just see all these snowy landscapes, it'll make you feel really cool. Just major immersion. Yeah, definitely. All right, moving on. Number five, speaking of immersion, one of the most immersive, probably cinema experiences that you could ever have in a cinema, and especially in IMAX cinema, mm. Dunkirk. Christopher well, Nolan. I never got to see it in IMAX, but I mean, the experience all in just a standard cinema was quite visceral. I mean, it was my most anticipated film of the year. Did not disappoint for a second. And what That's I lo- good. what I love about this movie, especially, is that it's almost an experimental war film. The film is told in a non-linear pattern. Like the, fi- the it's 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 got it's told from the perspective of both the air force, the navy, and uh, the army as well, and they're they're all in different time periods. So the the army story is told over the space of a week, the navy story is told over the space of a day, and the air force is told over the space of an hour, mm. which I yeah. really enjoyed. And I also love the fact that you never ever see the enemy. At all. No, you, you don't. You never see the enemy in this Which film. Which makes it more frightening. It really. really does. And because they probably wouldn't have seen them coming. And Well, that's how that's how those wars would have been fought anyway. Mm. You'd just be shooting out. And there. this film also has like a very unique Britishness to it. Like, do you kind of get what I mean by that? Yeah, like, I it feels it very a, British. It does but like, have a sort of British pra- patriotism to it. Mm. Which I guess is fine. And a lot of it is made by a British. Look, man this this all. film isn't. This is film is a very technically driven film. Like the, yeah, the performances here impressive. are actually kind of good, though. Mm. They, they're serviceable, and and the yeah. ensemble ensemble cast that they have is really good. Mark Rylance, especially as the as the old man that just like that like the navy are taking his boat and is like, well, fuck the navy, we're going to go and help them anyway. <laughs> yeah, and especially when they um find uh, Killian Murphy shipwrecked. And then, like, he's like, no, we're going into war. And Killian Murphy, who's quite obviously got PTSD from the mm. shit that happened on the beaches, is like, no, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. Mm. And his... And his oh, Mark Rylance is so good in it. Tom Hardy. I mean, the poor guy. He just can't be in a movie where he hasn't got something covering his face. Can he? He really <laughs> can't. This is... Like, what yeah, look bad? Ba- it was bad. A Mad Max, Bane. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, he didn't have to really do much. I mean... I doubt that he was really flying the planes, but I no. well, well, knowing knowing Nolan's uh, commitment to authenticity, he probably did. 
I'm, I'm, I'm sure maybe maybe I don't I, I can't see yeah, I would... him flying the planes with the, but Nolan wouldn't mm. have shot that with a green screen. He probably oh, absolutely he probably not. Got, he, <laughs> he probably would have got a, a plane to sit his plane. He probably would have got a plane just to sit um the part of Hardy's plane so it looks like it was flying in the air. Mm. And also something I was surprised with this movie just talking about performances Harry Styles I was confused as why the hell he was in this movie, but he was actually kind of good. He was quite serviceable in his role. He was fine, I guess. I mean, could, anyone could have really played his role, mm. I guess. He yeah. didn't have a, a real major part, but I guess he was fine. Yeah, but I mean, as good as some of the performances are, as we said, the real star of this movie is just all of the te- is Nolan himself mm. and all of the technical aspects of this film. Like he conti- he continues to amaze me. He has it's, not made a bad film yet. Say what you will about Interstellar. I love it. Oh, I mean, Interstellar is very technically... Like, I think the writing is terrible. But I think... <laughs> I, th- I can understand that. <laughs> but but, I th- but technically, that film is very impressive and the, the science behind it is very nice. Mm. That I like about Interstellar. And, and the cinematography of this film as I well. Mean, I, from I, I, I'd say that I like Interstellar over the Batman films. Mm. Well, yeah, but the cinematography in this film... Hoit, but, but I, I'm just going to mention this because... Number one, the cinematography is fucking brilliant in this film, but also it has the name. The name of the cinematographer is one of the most fun names to say ever. It's Hoyte Van Hoytema, is the cinematographer, <laughs> and my god, he is awesome. The same cinematographer from Interstellar. Like I think he's given Wally Feister the boot after that shocking Transcendence movie. So yeah, he made that. Yikes! That movie's dog shit. But yeah, and then also Hans, too boring to finish. Yeah, Hans Zimmer's score as well just adds to the cha- like the very chaotic and kind of frenetic nature of the film. Yeah, and I mean, the, especially the, added with the at points in like very t- and high tension, how he adds the ticking. Yeah, it clock. does. Yeah, it's like a ticking clock. It, it really builds attention mm. uh, of um, what the scene build up to, mm. which is quite and nice. And I will argue this is probably one of the best edited films of the year because this film. Like, as soon as you hear Christopher Nolan war epic, you're just thinking, immediately you're thinking that's three hours long. You're immediately thinking that will be three hours long. Mm. But then, to find out that this film was 145 minutes, and that watching the film, there is not a single moment that felt out of place, or not a single thing that was wasted. I mean, considering that the film... It just dumps you right into the action The chronology is is quite... uh, yeah, it's interesting where, where you're right. The stuff with the soldiers is taking place over a week. What's happening with the Navy is a, a day. And then the, the stuff with the, uh, the pilots is over an hour. Um, I mean, editing ed- editing these three different storylines would be quite the challenge. And it seems that the, the transition between the plot seems to be quite seamless. Mm. It's and, quite nice. And, spe- and speaking with like a ghost story, this is also a story that's visually to- that's told through visuals. And because mm. especially with the soldiers on the be- beaches, there is very little dialogue between them, and I love it because I am just so glad that they aren't spill they aren't just spewing out cliche war film dialogue. Yeah, like, I, I got to get back to my wife and kids. I'm like, <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm Sergeant Deadmeat. I need to find. I need to get back to my wife and kids. I love life. I, I am mean, definitely not going to die I, here. I, I do like I do like a lot of the stuff between the lead, uh, the lead soldier, 
and mm. that French soldier. Yeah. They, they didn't, I Especially mean, when they're actually, in that boat. Really nice, what, so they when they're really... in that boat that's starting to capsize and they find out that he's a Frenchman because they, mm. he snuck up. They, and because he, he didn't talk because like he knew he, that if yeah, he said anything, he would have... He would have gave himself away. Like He yeah. probably didn't know English very well. Mm. And of, and of course, moment, he was just... Yeah, that moment when they all think he's a Soviet spy. Not Soviet, sorry. German spy. Sorry, wrong war. But... <laughs> Yeah, it, I, I absolutely love Dunkirk, and look, as I said, this film is best seen on an IMAX screen, and even even that's even fine on just a on a regular TV or a regular cinema as well. Oh yeah, just as long as you have surround sound. Like, like I mean, this. I purposefully waited until I got home to watch it on my dad's uh, seventy-inch uh, pla- uh, HD plasma mm. screen, so I was very happy to watch that, and it was awesome. It is such a really really great film. And I think it—it's not the best character-driven war film at all, but is one of the but best I don't think technically it made. On the it is not focused it's so because the it's a, the event, and because honestly, if you were there at the beaches at Dunkirk, there wouldn't be any fucking time to complain about all these things. You would just do what you could to mm. get the fuck out of that awful situation. It's that you're interesting in. that you say that you find it like an experimental war film. I—I I mean, I've, I think there have been other war films that have haven't been edited. Oh, I'm sure there are, but it's just I haven't seen I one like in, Dunkirk. I guess in comparison to the war films that we get nowadays, a lot of them seem to be sort of like derivatives of something like Saving Private Ryan, where they're yeah. super dead serious and they would have a fair bit of gore in them and yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, as much as I love Hacksaw Ridge, I think that movie is very, like, beat for beat of oh, Saving Private Ryan. Mm. Well, not beat for beat, but, like, I mean, two completely different stories. It but seems quite similar. Like, it, yeah. It, it, it takes inspiration from Saving Private Ryan. It's quite evident. Oh, of course. But yeah, I... an interesting thing with Dunkirk um, is that it's not there's it, not really any gore in the film. No, no, it I mean, isn't. Yes, there are people dying. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that's how Nolan wanted it to be, or it's because he just he had to make the film like PG-13 or whatever the rating is over in America, um, so that it so that it'd be more watchable. It would have a bigger, broader audience for people to watch. But um, just just that, just just that change, that difference in comparison to other war films is quite interesting to see. Actually, mm. that the, the the film could be um, quite strong without having to have the use of gore in it. It's really well done. I absolutely loved it. That's why it's number five on my list. Mm. As I said, most anticipated film of the year did not disappoint. But there were four films that I thought were, were better. better. That were better. And number four was the most surprising part of the year. Well, the part the mo- oh. the most surprising film of the year. Look, I love Key and Peele. I think they are great sketch comedians. And never in a million years would I have ever thought that Jordan Peele would team up with Jason Blum and make a horror film with him. And look, talk about a film that just completely surpasses every single expectation and then some, and becomes one of the most original, best made, well best written scripts, well, scripts movies of the year. And that's Get Out. Oh, I, I it, is an, it is an interesting film. I, I would definitely say that. I, I don't like it as much as most, though. Unfortunately. See, I can get that. But, like, this is a film where I had it... Uh, I just kept getting higher on my list as well. Like, I, the more I thought about it, and then I rewatched it, I'm like, yep, this is definitely here. It's It's got to be. It really is just I here. Know. I mean, I don't find... I find some of the tonal transitions from horror to comedy to be a bit... Just not necessarily work. Well, okay. Much. I mean, it's not really a horror film. It's more yeah. of a thriller film. I, so it's I, a bit weird when people d- would describe it as a horror comedy. It's okay, definitely yeah. A lot of humor. 
more so thriller. I like the psychological angle to yeah. get out. I like what they do with um, uh, I like the visuals involving uh, what's who's the the lead? Chris Daniel Kaluuya's character, yeah. Chris. Yeah. Um, the character of Chris to be like sort of sinking into this void. Um, <laughs> sinking into Eric this doesn't know. We've we've got a new pot uh, set up here. We've got a zoom with some microphones. I'm not used of the to holding a <laughs> microphone in my hand. I have a tendency to move it about. <laughs> I mean, I, I liked all that stuff, but um, I don't know. I've, I found some of its sort of commentary to be a bit blunt, and the end, the ending, I didn't particularly like because it sort of takes a sort of a slashery route, which is a bit disappointing. Yeah. I was expecting, I, like, I wouldn't have minded if he escaped. I just wish it just it wasn't done in such a rather generic way, okay. and I didn't. I and I I found sort of uh which which one was it uh it was Jordan Peele Jordan Peele Jordan yes Jordan Peele even starred in this film I found his did he was it Jordan Peele was it he he, he directed he, he directed. wrote and directed oh, he didn't he didn't star in it though he Wait, didn't who act was, in it. who was the who was the comic relief character though? uh that was the TSA guy uh oh, yeah, I yeah. think he might be just like one of their like one of their like Jesus actors get out was a, was a while ago yeah. I, I found the, the comic relief characters would just really be wedged in. I I found see, it to be out of place. See, I can see why some people would think that. I compl- I think it's a, like levity that the film like, kind of needed. Annoying. I I wish the film would, would, would take more of a serious angle and, and still incorporate humor in it like it did, ac- actually. Like like some of those those parts where uh, you would have um the what's it the the consciousness of the of the original uh, mm. Okay, we're getting the spoilers here. But uh, I've already done a spoiler review on this, and oh, okay. so I'm I'm just gonna keep, so you can keep going. But yeah. and I'm I, I've said a lot of the stuff that I'm going to that I've that I was gonna say here on that episode. So go back and listen to that episode if you want to hear more uh, more in depth stuff. But I'm just gonna let Eric. I mean, keep I, talking I, I about like it. the interesting subversion they do with the with the the characters, um, the the black characters in the film. Mm whose bodies have sort of been taken over by the minds of elderly white people. And then mm. there's sort of like a power struggle between the, the original uh, consciousness of the person's body and the new consciousness. Uh, so I like how there's that struggle. Yeah. And, it, and, 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 and it's in sort of a strange, uh, grim yet comedic way, uh, they, they, they would sort of, they would be doing something, but then the, the, there would be the... The, other, the original consciousness sort of breaking out. Yeah. That, that would be like in the form of like, the the uh, the black woman smiling, but tears are rolling down her eyes. Yeah, I like that that stuff, and and and, and I like how the 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 black groundskeeper, I think he was, he has yeah. the grandfather's consciousness, and he and there, there I don't know if there were a few scenes where this happened, but he would like be you'd be charging at the at the protagonist, the photographer, he'd be mm. charging at him, but then he would change his path when he's running. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I found that to be to, to be quite funny. Like it starts off sinister. But then, like the um, uh, the punchline is quite comedic. But then, um, mm. I don't know. Just other parts of the film just didn't work with me. I don't think it's terrible. It's a mixed bag, in my opinion. Oh, okay. I still think it's fine. I so think look, I, I can understand. I just that. don't find it to be as great as most people think. Is all. See, I, I, I completely understand like why you think that, and like you're completely I'm just entitled a bit, to I'm that just opinion. A bit weird. 
<laughs> yeah, th- this is the this is coming from a guy who um on his Letterboxd account has Salo twenty days of so- one hundred and twenty days of Sodom as his favorite film. That's a quality film. Yeah, you're on a watch list now because of that. I'm just <laughs> a watch list. <laughs> yeah, you're on a you're on a watch list now because of that, mate. But look, I understand why you think that about Get Out. Like I. Like I didn't have much of a problem with the tonal shifts. I thought they actually were quite. They worked quite well, mm. and I think a lot of the scenes with the TSA agent actually gave some kind of much me- much needed levity to it. I also loved that Jordan Peele, and especially when like the scene where they're all meeting, when they're all meeting his character, and they're having that big like kind oh, yeah, of that, that big party, and they're all the, Jordan Peele is so good at writing dialogue for white characters trying to talk to black characters and try to seem cool to black characters. He's mm. so good at that. Or like, uh, I, I don't, I can't see that dialogue being very realistic though, but I know that the, 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 the film's sort of being kind of satirical mm. or farcical at least. But I, I don't know. I think I, I find, I just wish that the dialogue wouldn't be too strong with like, Oh man, basketball! Oh, I like basketball. Oh, I'm hip, man. Like, uh, no one fucking talks like that. You got to be a nut well, to be talking he, like yeah, that. Here's, here's why I didn't think is like they're very old. They're out of touch, and this yeah. is what they think that they are. So I, and th- this is what not see, that they are. That, that this is what they think that they like and what will appeal. I don't to them. see. I don't so, know Americans very well. See that that, that may be how they act. Ma- maybe but I can't see an Australian person doing that at all. Okay, maybe it's a cultural thing. Then maybe it's a cultural thing. I but I I also found that this movie was an absolute, uh, almost a masterclass in just atmosphere and in tone, and or maybe not in tone, but like just in building tension and just the atmosphere of the film. I also loved how like most of the score is just made up of like this very chaotic use of stringed instruments mm. that just adds to like the uneasiness of the of the whole yeah. film. It does have an it does, it does have an intro, interesting score that it sort of utilizes the same sort of tension building effect that's used in like Psycho. Yeah. Oh, definitely. With the with the, uh, with the violin. So yep. yeah. That's and also, what see. I what I found nice is that to see. I had no idea where this film was going. Like this film was pretty un- like. Yeah, okay, it's toward, pretty towards the end how it gets pretty much a slasher end, you, ending. You, you sort of you, you, but at the beginning you're not really sure where it's going. But you, you're not wrong with that because because uh, Peel seems to do a good. See, this is the thing. I was I was about to get really annoyed because I thought I was going to watch some kind of film where it's like. Oh, we're just going to be shitting on white people because um, because they they don't understand black people at all. But then, it, but like, but then the film sort of uh, yes goes beyond it, it deviates from that and then flips it, that. It sort of it completely flips that and it and it, and it, and it <laughs> turns out there's a, there's a more sinister motive. Like mm. that's sort of just that's just sort of just them being putting on a, a on a show. But then it's a bit annoying that it's like. Um, I will just say, um, yeah, you, I'm guessing because you have only seen this once, so you haven't really watched it. Uh, nah. You haven't seen the alternate ending for this film, then, have you? Oh no. Or have you heard of what happens? Ah uh, no. So okay, quick spoil like spoilers for the end of Get Out. So what happens? Like you, you know, at the ending, how uh, cri- like the po- y- this car comes up and you think it's a police car, and then the TSA agent comes yeah, out, yeah. and then they 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 leave, and then the girl the, the girlfriend is left to bleed out in the streets. Uh, what happens in the alternate version is that Chris actually strangles, actually does strangle her to death, and then that car that is a police car, and he gets oh, and he he, he taken to jail. and he gets arrested and taken to jail. And the last scene is like the TSA agent saying, "Look, I found all this evidence. I can do it." And then Chris is just like, "Dude, it's it's not going to happen. Like, no matter how hard you try, that you we can't win." 
Hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting. Wa- yeah, it's like you're wasting your time, and then the ending is him going to his jail cell. So that's the alternate ending of Get Out. Mm. Which, look, I think either ending is good. And like Jordan Peele, because I watched it with commentary, and Jordan Peele chose the other ending because he like wanted like a more a better like kind of up more uplifting ending that wasn't so depressing. Even though I think the depressing ending kind of fits with like the I, rest I of the tone of the film. It fits the tone, but it kind of comes out of nowhere, I find. It's sort of just, like, first the film is sort of critiquing how, how white people sort of perceive black culture and black people, how they sort of want to be, uh, they, they, they sort of want to be more like black people in a, in a strange sense. I, I'd, find, I'd find it weird for um, people to just th- sort of throw on the, um, oh, um, uh, because, I'm a, because I'm a black man, no one's going to listen to me. They they always think that the black the, the black man's at fault with a crime. I, I just I just find it sort of I don't juxtapose the other man. It wasn't really like that though. I may, I may have I may have explained, explained it. It sort of felt like I may that. have explained it badly, but like so he does get arrested for you know seeing the mm. first the police watches him choke her out, and then like yeah the TSA agents like look I've got all this evidence we need to help it's like. It, it's there's no evidence like you're fighting a losing battle mm. or something. I, I okay, I can't explain it in a better way. I'll probably have to watch it and then yeah. see for myself, really. Yeah, so watch it and then watch it with Jordan Peele's commentary as he explains why he made the changes. Mm. But yeah, I think Get Out, like, depending, like, you may not disagree, but like, everyone fucking loves this movie and it yeah, deservedly so. Like it. And look, I mean, it's very heavily inspired from, like, Night of the Living Dead and, like, The Stepford Wives and, like, yeah. a whole bunch of other, like, films. But, like, it will probably go down as, a, like, a horror classic at, at some point, I think. I, I think it would, it would gain, garner some kind of strange cult status in, oh, it, in I think a way, it Because it's unique enough. And this is also a film that just dominated the U.S. box office, too. It made, like, well, the world box office, I think it made, like, over $300 million off a $4 million budget, which is Gee. just... Yeah, that's a brilliant that, return. Look, if you're an indie film... killing. If you're an indie filmmaker, that's the dream. That is the dream. And now Jordan Peele gets to work with Spike Lee in a movie this oh, year. Oh, nice. That Jason Blum... No, no, not Jason Blum. No, yeah, Spike Lee and Jordan Peele are also doing a film. Mm. Which should be good, and I'm excited for it. It's called Black Klansman. It should be good. Black Klansman. Oh, sounds yep. interesting. All right, number three... Uh, it, as we've seen with the Golden Globes, it's award season now, and this is a film that will be talked about a lot during this time. This is... I, I, well, what was this? So, Guillermo del Toro has won for Best Director for The Shape of Water. This is breaking news from... I'm not sure how long ago, but this is breaking news to us. Yeah, and 12 minutes. Look, that's, that's well-deserved. I can completely understand that. That is awesome. So, <sighs> fucking hell extensive editing to be done in this episode. We've already hit the two-hour mark and we've got three films to go. Let's get through this. Number three is Call Me By Your Name. This film, similar to Ellipsis, but this film is much more narrow, like actually has a structure and a story. And the relationship between Elio and Oliver is just so magnetic and just so... that You just gravitate towards them on screen. This film... And their relationship especially is just so immersive and just so kind of hypnotic that it just holds you. And the film just holds you and mm. like keeps you under its spell for the entire runtime. And like a few films that I've spoken about today, as soon as the film ends, you just don't want it to finish. Yeah, I, I You want this, it to keep going. I hear many good things about this film. It's almost like last year's... This, this film would be this year's Moonlight, like from last year. It really year. is, yeah. 
I mean, there's a lot of similar themes to Moonlight. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the coming of age and like the self themes of themes of self discovery and mm. like you know that L- and the LGBT kind of yeah. messages well and themes of that too. And this how, how would you think it would fare against Moonlight? Is it very similar, or is it? You think it's rather different? Uh because I I, I I was afraid that like this like some people might like this film so much because there might there might be a, a big sort of uh, a boom in the popularity of uh, LTGB films, which is fine. Uh, but, but I don't, keep I don't want people to have a weird bias. Just No, just no this film is so you beautifully think it's made. So quite great. Yes. Because it does look quite nice. The writing of this film as well. I mean, this is based Cause off... Because I, I did like Moonlight. This, this is based off like a very, very popular book. And oh. the, the, the way that the characters interact and like the performances as well. Timothy Chalamet, like who I remembered seeing from something. And speaking of Christopher Nolan, he was the younger version of Casey Affleck in Interstellar. And I was like, that's oh. where I've seen him before. I knew I'd seen him from somewhere. Didn't do a whole lot in that movie, but fucking in this movie, he's so good. And I also love that this movie is like, it's mostly in English, this film, but there's a big big chunk of this there's film. There's a bit in French. There's a bit in French. The bit, there's a bit in Italian. But and of course, because this is set in Italy in like yeah, the eighties, and this film, another thing that this film captures beautifully is just the feeling of summer, like not the hellfire of summer that we yeah, have here, but like, like the the, uh, <laughs> the hellfire of summer over here. The hellfire. It was fucking forty three degrees. degrees. <laughs> it was forty three degrees Celsius here the other day. It was awful. Uh, yeah. So the, I, I could see from sort of the color palette that it's sort of like light contrast. Mm. So and, it has yeah. like this nice haze over it. So, um, hmm. what do you have any other good things to say about your? Yeah, um, well, as I said, Timothy Chalamet, also Army Hammer, who look along with this film, Final Portrait this year as well, mm. and Free Fire. He is you think complete, he's doing really good for himself. He is, and he's also completed his. I'm no, sorry, I'm Free sorry. Free Fire, I haven't seen, but I, have you seen that? I saw Free Fire. It's okay. Army yeah. Hammer was a pretty likable presence in that movie. The, the film is just kind of... It would have been an awesome idea for a short film. It just gets dragged out for a bit too long. Oh, that's a bit unfortunate. It looked like, it looked like an entertaining yeah. Wheatley film. And yeah, I, it, and I be, quite like Wheatley's... Wheatley's hit, and hit or miss with me. Oh, well, I quite like Hitley, Wheatley's uh, films. Yeah. It's got a very interesting uh, way of making a film. Yeah, but yeah, along with that and Final Portrait and Call Me By Your Name, Army Hammer completes his I'm Sorry for the Lone Ranger, I'm Actually Not a Terrible Actor trilogy. <laughs> So and yeah, he's awesome. I mean, just missed out on the on the Golden Globe, but like he was spectacular. And as I said, these two, you just can't help but fall in love with them on screen. So they have great chemistry. They have That's amazing chemistry. This is, I mean, this one and and the next two films are five star films for me. Hmm. So there were three five star. Yeah, films. I saw that on your letterbox. Yeah. So this is, yeah, this film is amazing. And also speaking of acting, and a guy who, as I said, was in everything, Michael Stuhlbarg is in this film as well. <laughs> He's plays He plays uh, Elio's father. Elio is played by Timothy Chalamet. He doesn't do a whole lot in the film, but there is a scene. There is a scene at the end of the film where he has this monologue that will not leave a dry eye in the entire audience. Hmm. It is fucking amazing. The way that it's written and Stuhlbarg's delivery of it so is it gets right to the mesmerized. heart. It is brilliant. Mm. It, and also, speaking of which, the final scene of this film is a long take. So the credits roll over this. It is a long take, not a long take, a unedited single shot mm. that goes for about three or four minutes that has this 
amazing song, which I cannot remember the name of off the top of my head, that this plays over it. And it just shows this character's emotion as he comes to this realisation of something. And it is truly heartbreaking. And it is probably one of the best endings to a film this year, mm. by far. I mean, it's good to see that you don't give out five so freely. There no. Only three from, from last year, you got five. Yeah, I got th- there were three this year. So that really shows you that these three are the top tier ones, in your opinion. Mm. And this, the, this film, it just feels so authentic, so genuine. So real. I absolutely love this film. It it deserves every awards consideration it that it's getting. It yep, Luca Guadagnino, you are awesome. I'm I'm actually interested to see what he's going to do next. I heard he's going to make a sequel to this. I don't know how. Ah, uh, I don't know. He he has he has two films coming out next but year. He's going to make a Suspiria. Remake. He is That'd remaking Suspiria, and which could be interesting. Especially with like how he uses like with his cinematography and like how he uses color palettes, especially and like. Because from I haven't seen Suspiria because I'm a oh. coward, but <laughs> do you want my? Do you want to borrow my copy uh, of Suspiria? I, I'm a coward, so I'm you not. mean you're a coward. It's not very frightening. Yeah, well, I've only it seen the poster and the tagline, and the tagline is something like the oh, the only thing that's the only over the top, yeah though. the only thing more terrifying than the first 98 minutes of this film is the last 12. Yeah. That's a bit awesome. over the top. But he has another film coming out next year, which I think has Jake Gyllenhaal in it, which I'm really excited for. I think it's called Rio, so that should be cool. But yeah, call me by your name. If it's playing in your cinema near you, go see it. Like, this is a film, like, it's over two hours long, but the, you just get so invested in the relationship yeah, between these two. Yeah, you the time. Yeah. And also, um, just viewer discretion, you may never be able to look at a peach the same way ever again after watching this a movie. Peach. Yeah. They do something oddly sexual with a peach, sort of just like in last Tango in Paris and the Bar of Butter. You'll see. Okay. Call Me By Your Name was the third best film of the year, and the f- first of three five-star films that I saw this year, the second of which, and the number two spot on my list, is, look, sequels. They're hit or miss. They really are. But look, hmm. some of them are great. Yeah. But now, look, forget Terminator 2. Forget Empire Strikes Back. Forget Aliens. Forget Aliens. Forget... You know what? You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to say it. Forget The Godfather Part 2. Oh, that's a bit harsh. I mean, that's, you're saying a lot here. I actually, no. a really good sequel. Scrap that. I haven't seen The Godfather Part 2. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm becoming one of the asshole film students that I hate. <laughs> okay. It may possibly be on par on Godfather Part 2 when he watches Godfather Part 2, but he All can't right. confirm that for sure. I can either confirm or deny that this is better than The Godfather Part 2 because I have not seen it, but... At this moment in time, in my life, I firmly believe that Blade Runner 2049 is the best sequel that I've ever seen. Well, Easily. I love this film. Considering its circumstances, it's a very good sequel. Look, this film does everything that a perfect sequel should do. It, mm. it, builds, it has an amazing script that further builds on the mythology and the world of the film. Mm. It introduces some really awesome and really compelling characters that just have really really complex characters. it sort of arcs. does bring more new ideas to the and table and brings like so AIs. many more ideas and it still is able to capture the feeling of the original film while feeling completely different at True. the same time which is what all great sequels do and is what Blade Runner 2040,000 does absolutely perfectly that's actually 2049 22,000 Blade Runner 2000 I was thinking <laughs> 24 shit 24,000 
Shit, 20, Blade Runner 2040. Oh, fucking hell. Oh, God. Now I'm just imagining the worst movie mashup of all time. Because I recently saw... There'll be some poor prick that'll be like... That may... I don't know, surprisingly, maybe been living under a rock and hasn't heard of Blade Runner or its sequel. Be like... What Blade Runner twenty forty thousand? What the fuck is this? Why isn't anything coming up in Google? It, it is the twenty seventh Blade Runner film, <laughs> Blade Runner twenty forty thousand. But no, I loved every second of this movie, and it's so burned in my mind because I actually really wanted to see this on a big screen for a second time. I put it off for so long. I only saw it again on the big screen a couple of days ago. I was I managed to find the only cinema in Melbourne that was still playing it, and even and this was one of the weirdest cinema experiences I've had. So this was three p.m. on a Wednesday, for watching a film that had been out for almost three months, and the cinema was still half full. Holy shit! That's, that's amazing. Great. That's insane. That really tells you the quality of film. And, I've, that, and, I, and I've been to cinemas where a film would have been out for a couple of days, and there's only two other people sitting in there. Yeah, I know. It's it's ridiculous. But yet, I can understand why. Blade Runner is... Blade Runner 2049. I think it might actually... Look, Blade Runner, the original, hmm. I like. I think, yeah, I like it I too, but I don't regard it as a I don't really, like masterpiece film. That no, the film has some incredible ideas, and Rutger Hauer is fucking brilliant. Oh, he's brilliant. Rutger Hauer is brilliant in that film. But it does have its flaws. It does have its flaws. The pacing is really... It really drags, and it is pretty boring at some points. Yeah, like, it, is, it is dreadfully slow. But and the, the, the ideas and the mythology and the philosophy is really, really awesome. And as I said, Rutger Hauer is just awesome. But this film, I think... But somehow this film, which it's, is it's 40 longer, minutes... Which is a bit weird. But it feels so much faster See, and feels... I'm actually going to agree with you on that. Like, I, I, do, I do find the original Blade Runner... Even though I like it being slow, I, I find it just to be a bit too stilted at times. And mm. I wish it could be... And I wish it could just be sped up the pace. Mm. Like, it's just, it's a bit, it, it becomes so bad, it becomes self-indulgent in points. Yeah, it is a little self-indulgent. But the strange thing but with the Blade th- Runner 2049 is that I, I think the, the, the pacing is much better. And it's, it's a longer so film and it feels shorter it than the original. It flies by. It feels shorter than the original, it's which is very so strange. Good. And, I mean, this, this this is a technical masterpiece, this film. I mean, Roger Deakins, mm. is he the best cinematographer working today? Oh, can, can we I get, mean, he's probably the best can, cinematographer that's working with big projects like this. Can, can we get uh, Deakins and Lebetsky to do like a cinematographer off to just <laughs> see who can make the more beautiful images? Uh, that I, would be, my, my money would be on Lebetsky, but I mean, Roger Deakins would give him a run for his money. Uh, I mean, and surely he'll win for the first time, Deakins. He has to. Mm. Or he it, surely has to. I, I, I could definitely see him winning for the, with mm. this. And just as well, the visual effects and production design are top-notch as well. Uh, the score from Hans Zimmer. And uh, I think there's another guy who did it with... Uh, who, what is his name? Benjamin Wolfish. I think he's a part of some kind of uh, band or something. Uh, the, the score to it, too. Very reminiscent of the original Blade Runner score, but yeah. like just adds the very Hans Zimmer-isms yeah, to it to make it more sombre. more sombre and like kind of more so, epic yeah. as well. Like what... Mm. Sounds more uh, orchestral with it, with its sort of somber booming. So like it, like he's using a foghorn in a sense. Yeah, kind of similar to the um, Nolan um, scores. Yeah, and I just got to mention as well with this film, uh, Denis Villeneuve. 
is he just makes brilliant film after brilliant film after mm. brilliant film. And now that I realise a lot of the issues that I've had with his films has not been with the direction at all. It's just been the writing and he didn't write them. Like my yeah. problem with Sicario is that there are a few subplots that could have been completely eliminated. My yeah, yeah. my problem some scenes that could have been eliminated. My my problem definitely. with Arrival was the into- the twist like the big plot twist as to why the heptapods were really there and like how that how the whole thing get resol- got resolved. I thought that was that's really a, that's dumb. Sort of effective build yeah. of um, getting into bigger uh, projects, mm. really. I still haven't seen... Control I still have not seen Prisoners or Polytechnic oh, or Insondees. Insondees and Polytechnic, you must, you must see. I have to, because this dude is amazing. He truly is. I, I'm, I'm hooked. I mean, I, I mean, in comparison to other uh, big filmmakers... Uh, who are making these big films? Villeneuve seems to be like the the man who could still make a big film, but can still have his style. Yeah, um, of course. Like he was able to translate his style from his lower um, budget films, his more independent films, to his big studio films quite well, which is quite strange. That he, he like he doesn't seem to do, have many compromises at all. Like as you said, it, the biggest compromise to his work would be. Some some of the parts of the script, writing, yeah, some script choices. But yeah, the Not script the script it, here is really compelling too, and the uh, I guess that's all, it's a combination of direction and editing and script writing. Why this film is so like fa- as fast paced as it is, mm. as well. But like the script doesn't there isn't a wasted any wasted space in this film. I think everything in this film has a purpose. Yeah, I, f- I find the film to be quite. Um, uh, like a lot of the a lot of the decisions mm. uh, from Villeneuve and others who are involved to be quite intentional. Mm. I do f- I do find that the film seems to be quite intentional. But don't feel like there are any moments that are sort of just random. And we were talking about um, uh, a fish man and a mute woman being one of the most unbelievable uh, romances in a film. How about an an- how about an android and a hologram in this film? Yeah. Like, I don't know how, but that was so well done. And the fact that it was like something that you, it's like a consumer product as well, yeah. and especially the scene after he walks out and there's the huge hologram of her, like it was in all of the trailers. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And there's also that very strange what uh, I don't even know what to call it—a romance scene because I don't really have yeah. sex. Where it's like it, it's like it reminded me of the scene in with, Her, yeah, where like she <laughs> yeah it does where in Her with where there's that escort that's willing to yeah um, yeah yeah about their sex like play out their sexual mm. experience and, yeah and she she has to sort of do the mouth movements for Scarlett mm. Johansson's AI yeah it's yeah. something similar to that except it's more uh, visual based where it's like there's there's a hologram morphing over the um. Mm. And also the way that like the the hologram is used for her, like even though it, like I th- this just is a a huge uh, <sighs> congratulations I guess or mm. like a huge credit to the people who did the visual effects for this film. Like you can quite clearly see that the actress is just standing there, mm. but you can just so slightly see through her. Yeah, it's I couldn't imagine how the hell they did that. Yeah, it would be. I don't know if they would have did some kind of like optical illusion effect or if that was CG or not. Yeah, it was quite impressive. It was very impressive and also impressive. Like, I mean, this it really isn't the star of this film, but to, for a film like this to get as good a performances as it got out of its cast, mm. I mean, 
that's really Ryan Gosling has just not been in a bad movie for ages. I mean, mm. he is. I mean, I haven't seen him in a bad movie since fucking Gangster Squad. So, <laughs> God, that movie sucks. And I, yeah, I thought he was used quite well in this film because yeah. I because sim- similar to the way he behaves in his ref in the films, where he seems to be quite he plays a quite reserved character. He yeah. Really well, young. he's a robot, so he can't really yeah, show that much. Ima- so I think that's why. Oh well, yeah. Well, he's an android. He's a replicant. That, that is, sorry, he's a replicant that's uh, that is told to behave in a certain way. But then, like in the second half of the film, that's where he gets uh, quite expressive. No, but I, I like how he takes he takes the memories to that because um, that's right. He has that he has that that wooden horse. Yeah, he thinks he. he, he he sort of he thinks, oh, could I possibly be a human? <laughs> and then, and then he has that sort of like uh, epiphany where it's like, holy shit, I could just be a human who is convinced to be an android. Mm. And he just <laughs> yeah, that existential crisis is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they must have upgraded the replicants so they don't live, so they actually live for longer than four years yeah. now. Well, they they seem to be more obedient. Yeah. in this film, and they, so they seem to be less. Mm. They seem to be less human. Um, in in the ways where they they can't express themselves as well, they don't have as much as as high a sense of uh, awareness. Except um, as a counterbalance to that, they're a lot more physically stronger. Mm. I will say durable. it's also good to see Harrison Ford actually giving a shit in a movie, mm. and he's really good in this. Like Blade Runner yeah, is clearly a film that he was. I mean, like I guess I mean the Deckard funny story like about. The original Blade Runner was that he wasn't very interested with uh, with his role there, but it seemed to sort of like enhance. I mean, it seemed to sort of work in the film in the end mm. because uh, him sort of acting so uh, like brooding, just him acting so gloomy, just sort of really enhanced the idea of uh, his character being extremely depressed with himself. Mm. living such a shallow life. Yeah, and I guess this film kind of disproves, like, the fan theory that uh, Deckard is a replicant, though, oh, doesn't God, it? Oh, that was absolute shit. But you didn't like that? That theory. Oh, no, 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 the oh. theory I the hated. Theory. The theory I hated. Well, it just completely disproves I'm, I'm, it. Because otherwise that puts in a big flaw is, like, why... Because a big plot point of this, ba- of this movie is that a replicant had a child. So I'm just thinking, why would you design the replicant to do that? Yeah, oh, okay. That kind of confused me a bit. I wasn't sure if... Yeah, I wasn't sure how to take... But I I, I like... I'm glad that uh, Villeneuve did try to answer that question, Mm. whether or not that uh, Decker was a replicant or not. I'm glad that he went with him not being a replicant Mm. because for the the original Blade Runner, I just find that to be too strange. I, I just... I find it to be kind of contradictory... Because because the film's sort of about this this human falling in love with this replicant, but like this human this sort of being convinced that this this replicant is about as uh, as human is, as any other human, human yeah. really. I, I so it'd just be weird for him to be a, a replicant. But yeah, I think this movie is just, ab- and I saw this in IMAX too, which was just absolutely brilliant. Oh, and yeah, th- this film also, I saw it in three D the first time, and this film really utilizes three D really really Jeez. well. The sit- like just with the cinematography and just how beautiful it is, and just the visual effects really, really make this a great three D film. Yeah, I quite like this film, but I do have a little, gr- a few gripes with it. I, I wish that it would sort of deviate a bit more from the original film, um, with its uh, visual style, because it does, mm. at times, it does feel a bit too safe with its homage to the original Blade Runner. Although, it seems a bit 
the world seems a bit too sterile in comparison to the original Blade Runner. Okay. Well, in the in the way where um in the original Blade Runner, what was really great with sort of the with the the set, I guess the set design is that like a there's just graffiti and grime and rubbish mm. everywhere. Like the 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 sets yeah, it, feel extremely. It feels a little big. bit more polished it in this feels one, a bit, doesn't a it? A little bit too more polished in this one, but it's not. I mean, it's, that's only in some scenes, really. It's not mm. um, like that the whole way through. And I, I kind of find the second half to be a bit weaker than the first. Uh, I can see that. I, I, I sort of, I sort of see it sort of taking the the the, the kind of because um, it because it does seem to wedge in like uh, there's a resistance force in there, and then um, like the yeah, that that really that kind of comes to nothing, or like it kind of comes to nothing save it for the sequel kind of thing. Yeah, but what I thought about this film up until like it was it's a complete standalone film, mm. but then that. F- that feels like they were setting up for a sequel there, or like hinting at a sequel. I'm like, I wouldn't you, be you surprised could have if they would make if they would make more sequels. I mean, I'd like to, but I think this film just works on its like it's a mm. complete film from start to end. Mm. Like it's it's a follow up, but it's also it's its own standalone film. Yeah, that's that's what makes it a very good uh, sequel mm-hmm. that it does tell its own story, mm. and it, and it and it, it does um, connect itself with the with the with the original Blade Runner, which is also good, mm. and and you're right, it does it does sort of like further expand the universe by bringing new ideas to the table, which is which is good for a sequel to do. Although, I, yeah, I I just did I did find the second half to be a little weaker, I found, and I, in a way, I sort of like that Villeneuve tried to execute action scenes in the film, but at the same time, they felt a little strange in the way that they were executed. Okay, like it, it's it kind of felt a bit unfitting i found because because uh, the action is very few and far and it seems very stiff uh, again i can see that but i didn't really have that much of a it's problem not it's it. not too bad because yeah. they don't have t- there's not too much action they don't put a huge focus on it i mm. like that he tried to do something different like uh um despite this film being so long like i was expecting sort of an action extravagant uh, um a lot more action in the film which is a bit strange just because of yeah. it being a uh do you think maybe the trailers made you think that? Yeah, it's probably. I don't know if it's. Maybe, maybe because I, I just. I, I just probably was going on the assumption that because this is this is 2017 and we're making, uh, and we're, we're making a sequel from an older license, um, just to make this film, uh, to be more appealing with uh, modern day audiences. We're gonna. I think the word you're looking for is pandering. Yeah, pandering. <laughs> yeah. But no, this film wasn't pandering at all. I don't think this. Yeah. It, this was a well-made sequel. And as I as I think, one of I guess the you, best. I guess you could you could argue that it panders a bit in the nostalgia, but it seems to it seems to utilize Harrison Ford a lot better mm. than um, Star Wars Episode Eight yeah. seems to utilize um, Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill. Yeah, yeah, I can see that definitely. So, I mean, for for a film for a film that would be using like a uh, character like actors from from the film back in 82 seemed to do do a good job with incorporating them into this film. Mm. Like there's, there's even that cameo for the, uh, the Army guy. Oh, yeah, Edward James Olmos. Yeah. That was awesome. I love that cameo. Yeah, I, I quite I quite enjoyed that. Mm. I mean, the, the final lines from the first Blade Runner film are just so ingrained in my memory. Yeah. That he just, like, well, when like he looks at the little origami oh, unicorn. yeah, and he's just like, you, you can, what was it? You can run, but you, you can't No, run. it was like, 
You know that she won't live. Oh, yeah. You know that she won't live, but then again, who does? Yeah. Awesome. I love Blade Runner 2049. Eric didn't like it as much, but... Oh, I still like it. He still liked it a lot. I just didn't find it as fantastic as most people would find, it seems. But I think that we both agree pretty heavily on my number one choice. you're not wrong with it being a a good sequel. And I think at points, in some aspects, and actually in many aspects, superior. A superior sequel in many aspects. I mean, well... In some aspects, 2049 is definitely uh, it, d- it definitely does some things better, like the pacing that we, we, we just uh, talked about earlier. Um, so th- some aspects of 2049 are definitely stronger, uh, like even like even the acting over the board I thought was a lot mm. better. Yeah. Because um, because I uh, yes I do. This like movie Harrison even got Ford. a decent um, performance out of Jared Leto. I mean, oh, you, I didn't like you, Jared Leto. you, he was used sparingly, thank God, but he I was actually, actually. I didn't actually. I didn't actually like. Jared Leto in I did, I found him a bit be a bit of a uh, sort of cheesy the villain. Okay. Um, I, I just thought the, like his line delivery he was he was saying things that were grander than what like the words that he was saying he must have thought they were grander what they were but they just yeah. Didn't be that yeah. You think he was reading like a his it college like, paper? He was yeah. reading like a college essay that he wrote. Yeah, on ba- basically, it was just it's it felt kind of hackneyed, but. <laughs> At least he wasn't used that much. Um, he was used sparingly, and I kind of like that. Even though he was like a big antagonist, they they don't they don't put too much focus on him being like a mm. huge threat. Like it's it's it, it, what's what's quite great about twenty forty nine is that um, Ryan Gosling doesn't even realize that uh, that the Tyrell Corporation interfering with his uh, with his uh, case. <laughs> yeah, and it's that time where he's asked to save by. Um, uh, the the secretary android and he, and and Warren <laughs> Gosling's like oh what the hell happened <laughs> yeah that's great but all right so we differed a little bit on that one but I think with my with my number one choice I think we've solid yeah, we we can, we, we can solidly agree on this and I had to think about this a lot like because call, the, the, call me by your name Blade Runner twenty forty nine and this film they both switched the top three spots so many times before I finally finalized it. And this is a film that I've seen in cinemas twice. I saw it... First time I saw it was a sold-out showing at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Oh, at one amazing. of... I had to line up a, almost halfway around the block for this <laughs> film. Waited in line for nearly half an hour just to get into this movie. And look, and it was in one of the worst... It, and the thing is, I saw this in one of the worst places you could ever see a film. I saw this at the Comedy Theatre on uh, Exhibition Street, I think. Yeah. Which is alright to see a short comedy show, like a 60-minute comedy set, but seeing a two-hour-long film there, the seats there are extremely uncomfortable, and it, it, it's just not a very nice theatre to it's go there. It's not very nice theatre. You don't want to go there in hot weather. No. Oh, sure. oh, God, definitely not. But luckily, Melbourne International Film Festival is in winter. But luckily, the film was able to keep me so engaged and just so... This film is so bizarre, but so compelling and just so out there mm. and so expertly crafted on, like... I, I loved every minute. I mean, uh, I Lanthimos is, is really making his name as being, like, one of the... One of the new great absurdist filmmakers. My number one film of the year is Yorgos Lanthimos. Your, yeah, sorry. Yorgos Lanthimos's. The Killing of a Sacred Deer. The best film of 2017, I think. This film blew me away. Hmm. Like, I mean, I, I was quite impressed with it too. 
I, I thought it was a, easily one of the strongest films of 2017. It really is. I just love Yorgos's style of purposefully very weird and just like it's off-putting and stilted mm. kind of dialogue and the delivery yeah. of all of his. He seems to he seems to sort of uh, switch between like deadpan to dramatic, like mm. quite seamlessly. Like, all, mm. like it's it's quite it's quite shocking, really, how well it works. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this film. It's and just like what I said with Hounds of Love, this is a hard film for me to recommend because this it's is very abs- it's very, it's very weird. And look, you'll know if you're into this film or not after the opening shot. The opening shot of this yeah, film is heart. a close-up of a beating heart that mm. slowly is zooming out and that mm. is being operated on in a surgeon's room. Mm. And then you just see that for like, what, nearly a minute? And then it cuts to the killing of a sacred deer. Mm. Then it cuts, yeah, just cuts straight to the title. Yeah, I thought the film was fantastic, really. Because it really is brilliant. I, it, just, that's, that's another thing that, I'm, that, I, that I just love that the film is so outlandish that, the, the, that a lot of... Uh, let's say just common cinema goers if they were watch something like this they'd just be like what the hell is going what the yeah. fuck am I watching like oh. <laughs> this is so bizarre like is this supposed to be is the acting supposed to be like this like they they, they really can't tell what they're, they're seeing until like the, the first scene of dialogue yeah the first scene of dialogue is Colin Farrell walking out of surgery talking to one of his other doctors and talking about watches yeah and it's like I like a leather strap oh I like a metal strap yeah it's like 20 <laughs> meters waterproof and something else with this movie it is a masterpiece in dark comedy Oh, yeah. This film is surprisingly fucking hilarious. It, it is hilarious. It's uncomfortably hilarious. A lot of people hilarious. don't actually seem to get the humour. It's so <laughs> crazy. I'm like, are you serious? This is the f- this is one of the funniest films I saw in 2017. <laughs> it's hilarious. I know. It's so good. I absolutely adore this film. I mean, oh. it's a hot. Hu- I mean, this is like, and as I was saying, with the hu- like the the beating heart, this film literally opens on. There is some imagery in this film that would probably make some uh, cinema goers physically ill. Mm. Like, and me being one of them. Like, uh, towards the end of this film, when some really, really, uh, let's just say, intense stuff happens, I <laughs> nearly passed out, and I uh, ran. I had to. I ran out of the theater and went into the bar staff. They gave me a glass of. What, they told it, me. What was it exactly that? It was, I don't know, I felt it for a while, but I think what tipped it off was like right at the very end where, uh, no spoilers, because I think this is a film that just... I I know what you mean. Yeah, Yeah. I'm just like, there was a moment that just happens in this film where it's just like... But like, when that happens, it's it's so brilliant because the the Mm. kid doesn't... He doesn't doesn't even really react to it. He's just like, like, he he sort of still has hope for his situation. He's like, mm. oh, father, I still want to make you proud. But what I also really loved about this movie, though, was just Diorgos' style of, like, what he did with the lobster, just deconstructing to such granular detail, mm. like, something about human, like society. Like, lo- in The Lobster, he was doing it with, like, relationships and, like, intimacy, yeah. just breaking that down. And here, it's just, like, family dynamics and just... Oh. And, I, and I like how he likes to, how a lot of his scripts... I'm not so sure about The Lobster, though. Like, but I know this with Dogtooth. Dog, Dogtooth is sort of like acts as an allegory for Plato's cave. Oh, okay. And um, well, this film is very, I'm guessing, heavily inspired from uh, Euripides play. Um, if I think it's Iphigenia at Aulis, I think is the one yeah. because I think that's how they got the title for the film because mm. that's about. Well, I, I, look, I don't really want to explain what this film was about because. 
there's a turn halfway through this movie mm. that is just brilliant and the consequences that come after it is where a lot of the comedy in the film comes yeah. from. It's uh, Like the really so dark... What, what's so hilarious, and I don't know if a lot of people would notice this when they're watching the film, but like... Colin Farrell's character is actually so... He's a terrible person. I know, he is. He really is. And this is the the, the crazy thing. Like, he's given this dilemma, and he's given these choices, but he doesn't think about, like, a really obvious choice. Yeah. Oh, because I caused the problem. Maybe I should pay for the consequences and Mm. do myself in. But no, he doesn't think about that at all. He doesn't think about that at all. And let's get into Colin Farrell. Like, he is praying... He he is thanking Yorgos Lanthimos every day now because he saved his career. Well, here's the Yorgos saved his career. I yeah, think. I guess Yorgos really did, and also the rest of the cast in this film, Nicole Kidman as well. Mm. Like, just she's had a fantastic year, as I said. Like, even the kid, even the kids that play them, like Rafi yeah, Cass- Cassidy and Sonny Suljic, I think. Which is which I'm only just realizing now. This entire family, like this film's set in America. But only like of that ent- like the only I do one of only American. only the kid only the boy is American because Colin Farrell's Irish yeah Colin Nicole Kidman's Australian and Rafi Cassidy is British. <laughs> but then I just got to talk about the standout of this film and possibly the best actor the best performance I have seen all year, Barry Keoghan as Martin. Oh yes, he was he brilliant. Is what unbelievably brilliant. This guy can be so deadpan with the delivery of his lines, but be so menacing. Like when he's eating spaghetti. Oh, that's the, <laughs> that scene is brilliant. And was, what's he saying is like, I thought I was spent. I thought yeah, I was. Thought he said, "Yeah, I, my I dad." That the way that I used to eat spaghetti was unique, but it turns out everyone eats spaghetti that way. <laughs> and he's like, "That was one of the saddest days of my life," or something yeah. like that. Like it's comedic and terrifying at the same and brilliantly time. executed all at the same time. That's that's so. What's so great of, uh, about this film is that. You, you could, like someone could watch it and they, they could just be terrified out of their mind mm. or you could watch it and you could just see it as being this brilliantly dark comedy and he just gets under your skin so so much <laughs> I mean oh. he is it was almost as if Yorgos created him in a lab because he is the, his delivery he's, he's his physical well performance it's perfect for a Yorgos film yes he is brilliant and, and, and the, the, there are so many great scenes with him like when they tie him up to the chair he doesn't even give a shit yeah, that they're I harming know. him because he's just like if you kill me your kids are, your kids and your wife are gonna die oh. you idiots <laughs> what about the scene the scene when the, that scene where he's tied up and he accidentally yeah. bite and he bites Colin Farrell's yeah, arm he and he's like his own arm oh <laughs> when I was watching he's like, that, he's like, he's like that, so simple eye for an that, eye <laughs> that moment in the that moment in seeing that in the comedy theatre there was a huge collective gasp when that <laughs> happened and it was awesome it was brilliant because because Colin Farrell was like what the fuck <laughs> and he's, he's chugging of his own arm he's like it's amazing eye for an eye he's amazing <laughs> so simple oh I love Barry Keoghan I mean he won't, but he deserves an Oscar nomination for that. He is I think so. fucking brilliant. I mean, he was had a small role in Dunkirk where he pretty much gets left left right united and then you know dies. <laughs> but in this movie, he was just <sighs> unbelievable. Was, was something really unbelievable. Unique. And also speaking of acting, it's nice to see Alicia Silverstone in movies again. Yeah. Even though, like, she's a terrible actress, but she works <laughs> with a lot... Like, she's good in this movie. Yeah, and she's... she's equally creepy as this creepy kid's mum. Yeah. 
she was extremely creepy. Like how she just she just forced herself on on uh, she's like on, so on Colin sad, Farrell. So desperate yeah, too. she just throws herself on the Farrell. Farrell's like, okay, this is too weird for me. I'm getting out. <laughs> and then she's like, you got. And she, she's she's almost like a crone. How creepy she is. Mm. She's got weird teeth as well. And she's mm. like, she's like, oh, you have to stay and you have to eat my cookies or something like that. It's yeah. like, no, I gotta go. <laughs> it's like almost she cast a hex on him. It's crazy. Oh, I loved it, and just the cinematography in this film too. Cinematography is great. The, I mean, the amount of like long tracking shots, like mm. just mostly through hospital hallways. Yeah, I mean, was a great track because they're following the camera. They're it's following, crazy. and not and what I noticed with the camera angles with this film, the camera is never in the same spot twice. No. The film has very very weird angles that make the film. I think the crazy really thing is that I think the angles go higher and higher. Yeah. Which is crazy to and sort of like build an uneasy tension. And the, this underlying the film makes excellent head. use of negative space too. Yeah. Like that poster where it's like that huge thing where they've pretty much just gone into like Photoshop and just like... Oh. Have you seen that? It's the poster where it's like the... Oh, yes. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. It's that, not was shown it, that was the there was a poster for it at Myth. Yeah, that one. That, yeah. That just simple... That, that sums up the film cinematography so perfectly. Like even, it's the, even the overhead shots are quite nice. Like with the with mm. the boy uh, collapsing after the escalator. Oh, that was awesome. Oh, God. I mean, we're just gushing about this film because it's just so perfectly constructed. I mean, what's so, what's so crazy is that you could, like, if if you're paying enough attention, you can see that there's gonna, that, that something supernatural is about to happen before, before it happens. And the, and the kid's just like, oh, my legs aren't working. There's, there's something wrong with him. I, I can't move him. And his dad's like, oh, stop screwing around. Mm. And then and then you see that part when he gets... Like, you know he's going to collapse. It's, yeah. it's crazy. I, I just love seeing the desperation. He's like, come on, walk, walk. Yeah. He tries to pick him up and just plonk. <laughs> just come on, walk. <laughs> and plonk. then he tells him that crazy, that crazy story. He's like, oh... Um, now let's play a game. I'm going to tell you something about me. You're going to have to. T- you're going to have to tell me a secret about yourself. Mm. <laughs> he tells him that crazy story. Uh, I don't know if we should like. No, nah, we, we won't mention. We won't mention this movie it has it's pretty, to be seen. It's pretty bizarre. Like, I can just imagine all the people in the audience, all the people that haven't seen a Lo- a Lanthimos film. They'll just hear that and be like, "What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Who greenlit this dialogue?" Oh, I mean. This is easily the best film of 2017. Oh, in my it's it's, it's definitely the strongest. It's it's, it's easily uh, out of my select few. It was easily like in the top three. I, with my films, I don't really like to put them in any placement, but it's definitely yeah. the, one of the strongest. Easy, easily. I fucking love this film. And at this point in time, I remember what was, what was something I was going to say about seeing this. At Myth. Oh yeah, seeing this. Uh, I because I saw this at Melbourne International Film Festival, which was back in August. This is like I don't like to watch trailers anymore now, mm. but oh, but the trailer for this is so strange. But here's the thing: what was weird because I the trailer came out four days after I saw it. Oh, so this was the it's weird seeing a film and then watching the trailer come out. Mm. It was because the the music for this film is very haunting. It was very similar to The Lobster. Mm. And a lot of, kind of like with Get Out, like a lot of very stringed yeah. kind of instrument and like a massive choir use too. This, like, this, Killing of a Sacred Deer seems like a really interesting fusion of uh, Dogtooth and Lobster to, for me mm. at least. With like a little hint of kind of Kubrick in there too. Like it's yeah. very... Yeah, it is kind of Kubrickian with the, with the, with the, with the way, with the heavy... Uh, focus on the characters, how they're so well developed, 
like what's so strange is that they'll say a line that, that some person would just pass like someone would just think that's just a throwaway line but it's actually really mm. important yeah like, i can't is that do you think and something I forgot to say about Get Out, like Get Out made excellent use of foreshadowing. Mm. Does this movie? Do you th- like? I, I, I even though I've seen it twice, does this movie do anything like that? I think I think it does. Although um, I've only seen it once. Oh I should, okay. I should rewatch it. Although when when I was when I was watching the film, I could I could sort of see. I could sort of see some of the events happening before they happen. But I don't think that the foreshadowing really wouldn't have been wouldn't wouldn't have been done for something like, oh, here's an item, uh, or here's a here's an image that is going to reference to something that's going to happen later. It was more so in the way how just the tone of the film, like just just cause, just because of how, just how strange the dynamic between Colin Farrell and Kogan was, like you know that there's there's, there's there's something wrong there, and then there's the heart at the start. That would have been him operating on his father. Mm, that's what I'm thinking too. Yeah. yeah. So, because so I was trying to think, what was the meaning of that? Like, it can't be just to in, to introduce that yeah. he's a cardiologist. Like, I've got a feeling, and then I'm like, that Wait, was maybe his this father. is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I I definitely think that was his father, and and I think a lot of the foreshadowing is just sort of it's really just done through the the interactions, the dialogue, and sort mm. of the behaviors of the the of the characters. Like they like they even mention like Holland Farrell even mentions early in the film that oh yeah um. No, he's 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 other friends. Yeah, um, co- I think it's yeah, it's offers built. him a drink and he says no. Nah, um, Is, isn't sorry. he the anesthesiologist? Oh, he's anesthesiologist. The, I don't remember yeah. what kind of doctor because he because was. I remember he says like when a patient dies on the t- when, when a patient dies. Oh yeah. But when a patient dies on an operating table, it's the anesthesiologist's fault, not the cardiologist. And yeah. then the anesthesiologist says the opposite to yeah, that. So. Yeah. Yeah, which is quite, yeah, which is quite and, funny. And that, yeah, he's played he, he's played by a character actor Bill Camp, who is most notable in a lot of uh, Jeff, Jeff Nichols films. Mm. Which I, I was cool seeing him in this film as well. Yeah, as I was gonna say, at the, at the award ceremony, they that's that's when they they there's another piece of foreshadowing that that uh, leads to information that will be revealed later in the film, where he where he doesn't drink anymore, like mm. like his wife's. His wife says, "Oh no, he doesn't drink anymore. He's been off the alcohol for two years." Oh, oh yeah. that's and wait, has it been two? It's did they say it's been two years since that happened? Yeah. Oh. Well, the, the incident happened two years later. Like the, the later on, the kid mentioned something about, "Oh, two years ago, my father died." Oh, that's it's 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 quite that's that's the, that's how the foreshadowing is done. It's sort of like it's more like a it's more done so in the manner of a play because um. When Themos used to, he used to. He was a th- big plays. theater. Yeah. yeah he's, he's really. Well, that's why he likes his. his, his that's why he likes his Greek tragedies. Like, and he his likes his Greek tragedies, and that's why he has a huge emphasis on the way his his characters mm. behave in his films. I also think is he still writing his? Because I noticed when I was watching the credits to the Lobster, mm. like maybe maybe he actually has now, but like, does he still have a? Is he still writing these scripts in Greek as well? Because I remember sure. he he wrote the lo- the script for the lobster was initially written in Greek and then they got people to translate it to English. <laughs> that's so, a, that's that's an interesting way to look at it. I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if he you you with the lobster he wanted that to be a gr- another Greek film or mm. not. Well, the lobster is very European yeah, film. Yeah, it's very European. <laughs> oh, the lobster's fantastic as well. Uh, I think I, mean, I find I find the, the second half to be a little the second weird, half. As soon as um uh Colin Farrell escapes the hotel, I think yeah. the film goes a little downhill from there. It goes a little downhill. But I think the like, ending to the lobster is amazing. 
Yeah, I think yeah, that's weird too. The ending Even is brilliant. The second, I thought the second half was rather weak. I thought the ending was still. See, good. I think I think the first half is really compelling for I this film. The first, half, the first um, half is really good. You're like, what's going on? Like, who is this guy? Why does he keep following him around? And then the second half is like, what the hell's gonna happen? Yeah, like uh, who, it's even this, crazier. And you're not wrong with that because 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 Colin Farrell. Um, what I like that they they that they do early in the film is that they. Just, just sort of like a Greek. Uh, there's, a, there's a strange family dynamic, like in the Greek tragedies, where there's there's, mm. there's child favoritism. And Colin yeah. Farrell likes his daughter over his son. He, he kind of doesn't like his son, but then it sort of changes when the son, even though he's dying, he wants to get his father's approval. Yeah. Well, does he go he's out? Kinda, goes out and waters the plants. Yeah. Goes out, <laughs> like, yeah. He's like, oh, he's like, oh, do I, do you want me to water the plants? Like, he's like, no, Bob, you don't need to water the plants. Yeah. And this is him when he's like. When he's lost all control of his legs and he's like dragging himself around the house, that would make so that would make so many people feel uncomfortable. But there's sort of sort of this comedic sort of endearing nature for this guy, even though he's about to die, he still wants to do something like a task yeah. of simple, watering the plants to impress it's, his father. It's insane. It's great. <laughs> so, it's so, I mean, there's so many great uh, oh, it's, parts to it. Like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Hey, oh, do, bu- do hey ha- Bob, <laughs> when you die, can I have your MP3 player? <laughs> <laughs> that. W- <laughs> oh. I might have to put spoilers on this because we may have yeah you too much but probably our, our um but we haven't really explained what the plot's about so I think you can s- still go into this not I think it's better going in not knowing what the plot is because then it'd become more of a surprise even though we've just we just put spoilers everywhere it's alright I'll edit some of the spoilers out and this right now but what we're saying is please when this comes out on on demand, or if this is still playing in a cinema near watch, you, which watch it this. might be, watch this with as many people this. as you can find. Please watch this. Watch this with a family. I'm interested to see how some people would react to this film because everyone that I've, uh, everyone I know that has seen it, has thought it was just brilliant mm. so far, and that it's. I mean, all the people that I know that saw it, yeah, they 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 think it's. Well, some people think it's brilliant, but they think it's like they think it's the weirdest, most fucked up thing they've ever seen. Well, they, they, they'll think that it's terrible because the film made them feel shit the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I remember, th- that, that just reminded me, there's another another group of YouTubers I watch on uh, on YouTube called uh, Breaking Banter. Mm. Their, their review for this film, they like started out by going like, oh, this movie made me feel icky. Oh, it was really gross. It made me feel oh, okay. d- disgusting. And then they both shouted, that was the point! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so... Killing of a Sacred Deer is my favourite film of 2017 and is the best film I'm, I'm of 2017. It's, it's definitely one of the most... Yorgos Lanthimos, you are the master of it's the bizarre... the strongest comedy of last year. I, I could say that without batting an eye. And he has a film coming out next year as well that I'm really excited oh, for. Oh, same here. It is called The Favourite and I think it's set in like 1850s England and it has oh, something to do with the, of some royal family. Well, I'm not sure if it's England, but it's somewhere. It's about some royal family. I don't know. As far as I remember, Emma Stone is in it. So I'm okay. just wondering if she, what she would be like in a Lanthimos film. Like if she can, if she would be yeah. good at delivering the very stilted and weird dialogue. Well, I, I trust in Lanthimos' abilities. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned this. Cause I, I, I actually know about that, that he was making another film. Is it, is it going to be released next year? Yes, next Jesus, year. Jesus, I, I definitely want to watch it's that. called The Favourite. So favorite. look out I'll for it. I'll remember that. And I need to watch Dogtooth now. And hell, I'm going <laughs> to watch that. I'm going to watch that at, at, at the festivals. Hopefully, yeah. If, if it's around the festivals. I haven't, I've been looking at, at Sundance and like 
at, like Sundance, not playing at Sundance yet, mm. so maybe it's premiering at Cannes. Oh, right. Well, let's hope. I think but yeah, Dogtooth, you should you should give it a look if you really uh, like Killing of a Sacred Deer. I think you would really enjoy Dogtooth. Definitely will. And that pretty m- and that wraps up the list. Woohoo, we got through it and at nearly three hours, I think. This is a podcast. two-parter. This is a two-parter. I am splitting this into two parts now. Just make one epic podcast. No, three hours. no one would listen. Hey, mate, don't don't you know what you do with um any when you have any media format, you split it into two halves and get as you get twice yeah, you get as, as many much money as you get. Well, I don't get money, but I'll get twice as many plays. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how they seem to do it nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yep, we're doing we're doing you know. And split it into two parts to make more money mm. or to get more views because you know I need acceptance and I'm lonely and I have no social life and this this is the only thing I get enjoyment out of yeah, I, thought, I thought it was just just from a capitalistic perspective because hmm okay we, we've made this film wait a second we can split this film into two films and they can make us more money we basically save money on making another film yep <laughs> sure did uh, Eric Tisher, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Sure, if and as always. and hopefully, if uh, Eric finds out when Eric finds out his uh, results for and university offers, if he ends up going to Swinburne next year, he's my co-host. He is my co-host for this show. <laughs> if he if he goes to Swinburne next year, if he gets accepted into Swinburne, he's my co-host. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, de- I'm de- I'll be definitely accepting the offer. Well, if I do get accepted into Swinburne. What, wait, what offer? Your offer. Yeah, this is an offer. This is an obligation. Oh, this is an this obligation. This is an obligation. <laughs> You're going to force me by gunpoint. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, do the pod. Eric, come and do the pod. But I've got class. No, shut up. This is more important. Well, I guess we could just do the the class. Uh, I mean, the, the podcast during my class. Mm, oh, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> Uh, so thanks for coming on, man. You are awesome as always. You always have such really interesting perspectives and just really, really cool things to say about these movies. Mm. That's why I love having you on. That's why you've been on so many times. I mean, I, I enjoy doing this, especially with a good friend like you. Oh, I mean, oh, um, shucks. <laughs> I'm blushing right now. <laughs> oh, well, I'm I'm glad then. All right, uh, Eric. Uh, now that I found out that you have Letterbox, do you want to po- do you want to plug that? <laughs> Uh, no. No? <laughs> yeah, as I said, he's he's got some weird films in his uh, favourites. He, he's he got 120 Days of Sodom and uh, in his favourites. As I said, he's on a watch list now because of that. And uh, Originally, it used to be four salos for oh the favourites. Oh, God. <laughs> let, me, let me guess. The other ones you have are a Serbian film and Irreversible and uh, let oh, me just actually, say I Cannibal have, Holocaust. I do have Irreversible <laughs> in my likes. And is a Serbian film there too? Ah, uh, no. Oh, God. But, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll be very happy if I never have to go. If I go through my entire life without ever seeing those films, I'll be fine. Yeah, oh, yeah. You, I mean, you don't have to watch every film. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like them. doesn't mean that you have to like them. All right. And speaking of films that you don't have to go through your life watching, next episode is going to be the worst of 2017. Yeah. I have a, bo- I have a t- list of 10 films that were just absolutely fucking awful <laughs> that we're going to get into. Hopefully we could devise which ones are going to be the ones that have genuine entertainment value to them or the ones, or maybe they're just terrible. Just straight terrible. All right. I'll save my plugs for the end of the worst of episode. So thanks for Eric Tisha for coming on. And thank you for sticking through both parts of this podcast. I am going to split this up. 
Well, for sure. we have another one to go. And there's another one to go. So tune in for that. Thanks for listening to this one. And we'll see you later.